We turn to our text this morning, which is taken from the Word of God as you find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We'll begin our reading, however, at verse 1 to put it in context. Seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together from Psalm 40, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in order to be considered a citizen of Canada, you need to possess certain qualities or certain qualifications. For example, you should, of course, be patriotic, which means you must be committed to this country and, under certain circumstances, even willing to swear an oath of allegiance, as it were. You should also be law-abiding. In other words, you should have a respect for the laws of this country and be willing to obey them and to respect those who are in authority over us, whether it be police officers or judges. You should also be an honest taxpayer. And I know, of course, that's not very popular. It never has been. And since those days of the rise of the GST, we are told that Canadians uh, do more tax evasion than ever before. But in spite of that, we do have, as Christians, a responsibility to pay our taxes. You should also be, I guess, in addition to all of these things, knowledgeable about Canada. Most of the time, or it used to be at least, when you sought to apply for Canadian citizenship, that you would be asked a number of questions about Canada. For example, what's the capital city of Saskatchewan? Or in what province is Charlottetown? Or who was the first prime minister? Those kind of questions. And of course, more than anything else, you would need to be committed to this country, committed to its well-being and its welfare, committed to its promotion, to helping its people and to living a quiet and responsible life. So there are quite a few things you might say involved in being a real citizen of the nation of Canada. And of course you may be wondering, why am I giving you this civic lesson this morning? After all, why are we talking about Canada? Why are we talking about government? And what does that have to do with this worship service? Well, you can say that on this Lord's Day, I would like to speak to you on a related question. And the question is not, what are the necessary qualities of Canadian citizenship, but what are the necessary qualities of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What are the requirements for heavenly citizenship? After all, if you look at our text here, you'll see that It comes after Matthew 4. And in Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus appears on the scene and he starts talking about his main theme in his ministry, which is the kingdom of heaven. It says in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it says as well in chapter 4, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom healing every disease and sickness among the people. So you can say our Lord identifies with his coming with the presence of the kingdom. 
He had, his preaching it represents the gospel of the kingdom, and his healing shows us the power of the kingdom. Yes, and now here next in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, you can say the Lord Jesus talks about the constitution of the kingdom. And with what does that constitution begin? Well, it begins with a description of what constitutes a true citizen of the kingdom. What characterizes these citizens? What sets them apart? What sort of qualities should they possess? In short, then, we're asking the question today, and you can see in the rest of these Beatitudes, this question is being asked as well, what really is a kingdom citizen? You can, of course, also ask, what is a believer? What is a child of God? What is a follower of Christ? But here, this morning, we're asking what really constitutes true citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'd like to preach to you this morning on the following theme, being poor in spirit, the first mark of a kingdom citizen. Being poor in spirit, the first mark of a kingdom citizen. We're going to, first of all, define it, then we'll model it, and then we'll speak about pursuing it. Well, beloved, the Sermon on the Mount begins, as you can see in your Bibles, with a series of Beatitudes, and actually there are eight of these Beatitudes, and Beatitudes really are, you might say, expressions of blessing, expressions of well-being, eight qualities of well-being that describe the citizens of the kingdom of heaven or of God. Yes, and then the first one that's mentioned here is this one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit and to be blessed in this way? What sort of quality is this? Well, the answer that many people will give you is that really being poor in spirit really means being poor, poor in money, poor in possessions, poor in prospects and in property. In other words, they say the kingdom of heaven is, first of all, for those who are economically down and out. And of course, you know what that means, you children who are listening. You should take your piggy banks and you should empty them. And you parents, those fancy homes that you should live in should be downsized and simplified. And you automobile owners, as for all those fancy trucks and SUVs in the driving, well, they should go as well. It's time to scale down, it's time to scale back, and if we refuse to do that, then, well, we're not really good citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So is that what the Lord Jesus is teaching us here? And of course, there are some people who insist, yes, that's exactly what he's teaching here. They look, for example, at the Bible, and they notice in the Bible that God often speaks about the needs of the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. And they refer back to the prophets of the Old Testament, both the major and the minor prophets, and how often they, they railed against those who exploited the poor and pointed a, an accusing finger at the wealthy. And hence the conclusion is reached by many people that when the Lord Jesus talks here about being poor, he's talking about being poor in terms of earthly 
possessions, and earthly goods. But is that true? Is that really what the Lord Jesus is zeroing in on? And the answer is no. The answer is that that's a very simplistic and accurate interpretation of his words. For notice the Lord Jesus doesn't say simply, blessed are the poor. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that expression in spirit makes all the difference in the world. And if you ask, well, in what way does it then make a difference? Well, it means that our Lord is going much deeper than our pocketbooks. It means that his focus is, first of all, on the internal and not on the external. It means that he is so much more concerned about attitudes than he is about assets. But what sort of attitudes? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the first thing that it means is that true kingdom citizens realize that they cannot save themselves. They have come to that point in their lives where they know that no matter who they are, no matter what they do, they cannot carve out their own way up into heaven. They may be very devout in their religious exercises, in prayer, in meditation, in scripture reading, and all the rest. They may be upright in their dealings with regard to their neighbors in terms of honesty and integrity and transparency. They may be extremely generous in their giving of 10 or 20% or what have you. But still, deep down in their hearts, they know. They know about the flaws in their devotions. They know about the lusts of their heart. They know about their intrinsic shortcomings and flaws. And they know that they need grace and mercy every day. Every day they need God's grace to keep them going. You might say in respect to being poor in spirit there is a particular parable that the Lord Jesus tells that says it all. It's the parable of the tax collector. And you may remember it. Actually it's a parable about two men, a tax collector and a Pharisee, right? And, and it opens with these men praying. And for example, the, the Pharisee, when he prays, he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, on the surface, you would say, what a great candidate for the kingdom of heaven. This man is morally upright. He's really pious. He's, he's very generous. And then over there, we have the tax collector. And he prays as well. Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we hear that and we think, well, what kind of a prayer is that? Short, wimpy, self-accusing. Obviously, this man is not a very good candidate for the kingdom of heaven. You see, based on externals, on face value, the Pharisee wins 
Hands down. And he gets ushered into the kingdom. But beloved, that's not what happens. The kingdom of heaven is not in the first place about externals. It's a matter of the heart and of grace. Yes, and the heart of that Pharisee is what? Well, you can tell from his prayer. This is a proud man. This is a haughty man. This is a man who likes to talk about himself and his own achievements. And he's very condescending when it comes to his neighbor. This man needs no grace. This man thinks he can do it all by himself. He's not poor in spirit. He's haughty in spirit. On the other hand, the tax collector has a heart that is broken and contrite, a heart that yearns for God, a heart that, that knows its need. Truly, it's the tax collector who is actually poor in spirit and who qualifies for the kingdom of heaven and not that Pharisee. And so, being poor in spirit means realizing that you need grace, God's grace, to uphold your life every day. But it also is something else. Being poor in spirit means that you realize that you are in need of God's daily care and help every day. Often we forget that. You know, we adopt an attitude of once a believer, always a believer, once converted, always converted, once up and running, always running. In other words, we need God, we think to ourselves at the beginning of our spiritual journey, but once we get going and moving, well, we can take care of ourselves. We may not start with pride, but after a while, pride sets in, and we think we can do it. But such an attitude represents a huge mistake. We need God's strength just as much in the middle and at the end as we do at the beginning. We need it to keep going, to face life's challenges and hurdles and burdens. Otherwise, we're going to run out of spiritual steam. I remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul that he, he says to the Philippians, I can do everything. Sounds like a boast, right? But then look what follows. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul doesn't say who, who gave me strength, past tense. No, he says, present tense, who gives me strength. In other words, he's able to do what he's able to do because he realizes that it's God who gives him strength every hour. Every day, every week, every month. You see, he doesn't take his relationship with God for granted. No, he looks to God every day. He knows he's in need of God's grace, and he knows he's in need of God's constant and abiding care. 
He knows he needs Jesus Christ as the good shepherd in the center of his life. And so why does the man who is poor in spirit look to Christ? Why does he always look to Christ? Well, you can say, beloved, in this matter of being poor in spirit, Jesus Christ is our model and our example. And of course, in a way, that's surprising. After all, he's the Savior, he's the Lord, he's the King of glory, he's the Son of God. So how, we ask ourselves, how can he possibly be poor in spirit? Well, he is. Think about it. Isn't that how he, he lived on, on earth? Wasn't that part of his character as well as his calling? We read in the Gospels how he lived such a, a humble, self-effacing, servant-like, obedient life. He was obedient even unto death. You see, Christ didn't come down to earth with a, with a swagger and a boast, with a kind of do-it-yourself, I'll-fix-everything-up attitude, with an independent kind of mindset, the sort of self-sufficient spirit. Far from it. Look at what happens before the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 3, you read about the baptism of the Lord Jesus and as you know, John the Baptist is not very comfortable with the idea that he should baptize the Lord Jesus. And he says to him, why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. And then you half expect the Lord Jesus to say, John, you're right. I'm the Messiah, you're the messenger, so I should baptize you. But he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that because He's know, he knows that he's been sent to earth to do the will of his Father. He knows that he's been sent to redeem all those whom the Father has given him. He knows that he needs to live a dependent, serving, sacrificial life. And that's why he says, let it, let it be so now, John. It's proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so we see the Lord Jesus' attitude right at the very beginning of the gospel. And you see it in his confrontation with Satan as well. Three times the, the devil takes him and tries to trip him up. And he does so with temptations of power and pride and pomp. Prove that you can turn these stones into bread. Show that you are the Son of God by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Receive all the kingdoms of the world by worshiping me. Well, how does Jesus respond to those temptations? Does he zap the bread or the stones into bread? Does he jump off the pinnacle and get caught by the angels? Does he worship the devil and then turn to him with a grin and say, well, I didn't mean it anyway? What does he do? He simply quotes scripture. He could have used his own insight. He could have come up with his own wisdom. But no, he turns again as a servant to the wisdom of the Father. He lives his entire life in subservience, his entire earthly life, 
in subservience and submission to the word of his Father. He humbly relies on the revealed will of his Father. And finally, beloved, consider also our Lord Jesus and his life of prayer. We would say that here is someone who can pray, but who really, really doesn't need to pray. After all, he possesses all kinds of power, power to heal, power to raise the dead, power to summon the angels. In addition, he possesses all the wisdom. He doesn't need to consult with anyone else. He doesn't need to pick someone else's brain. He knows it all. And finally, he possesses all the holiness necessary. We need to pray to God for the constant working of the Spirit in us and through us. But he doesn't need to. And yet he prays. He prays. He prays as if his life depends on it. Every day he communes with the Father. Often he gets up early in the morning to talk with him. Sometimes he even goes away when there is pressure on him for days to talk with the Father. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the Son of God lives a life of total dependence on the Father. That he knows what it is not only to preach about being poor in spirit, but that during his earthly life, he also shows what it means to be poor in spirit, humble in spirit. There is with him no bragging, no boasting, no self-promotion, as it were, in the human sense. He's always looking to God the Father, listening to him, depending upon him. Jesus is poor in spirit. But you know, if Jesus is this way, and Jesus is our Savior, then he's not just our model. He should also be our incentive. If that's how he lived on earth, isn't that how we should live as well? If prayer sustains him every day, should prayer not also sustain us? If the scriptures are his constant guide, should they not be our guide as well every day? Indeed, more than he ever needed to, we need to admit that we cannot save ourselves We cannot live the Christian life in our own strength and that the only true way to live it is in humble dependence on the Father. But are we prepared to do that? Our tendency is to say on the one hand that we can not save ourselves, but on the other hand, we sure try a lot. Our inclination is to downplay or even to dismiss our sins and to prop up our achievements. Our way is to rely on our own strength. And we only avail ourselves of God's strength when we're stuck. Or we have our backs to the wall. Yes, and if those kind of things accurately reflect what is going on in our lives... 
that we're really proving one thing. And do you know what it is? It is that we've not yet learned to be servants. That we've not yet learned to be poor in spirit. For that's where we need to go. We need to become servants who humbly pray to God, who eagerly listen to God, who daily seek God. We need to become servants who bring the gospel to others, who cater to the needs of others, who promote the well-being of others. Forget about praise and status, about ease and affluence, about power and influence. Forget about being like the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector, poor in spirit. Yes, and then if we do that, then something else will happen too, the Lord Jesus says, for then the kingdom of heaven will happen. He says, for theirs, for these kind of people, there is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? That means that you have help for today and hope for tomorrow. You know, some people live the life, the Christian life, as if all the good stuff is for later on. You know, here below we sweat and we toil. Here we are insulted and persecuted. Here we are often poor and miserable. But you know, it has to be said, appearances are deceiving. For the Lord Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, theirs will be in the by and by the kingdom of heaven. No, theirs is. So he's saying the kingdom of heaven is not just for later, folks. It's not just when the great king returns on the clouds of heaven. No, he's saying already now, you can have fellowship with God. Already now you can walk the Christian walk. Already now you can experience God's gifts and blessings through the power of the Spirit. The kingdom is here already. The rule of God is here. Christ has come. And we are blessed. But of course at the same time we know not totally yet. Not perfectly yet. The best, it's true, is yet to come. And I know sometimes we, we wonder. We wonder whether all of this daily spiritual commitment to God is really worth it. Are all these sacrifices that we make really necessary? Is all this commitment on our part really called for? Is, is this worship every Sunday again really good for something? Well, it is. It truly is. The Lord Jesus himself says that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a pearl of great price. And that means, he says, you should do everything you possibly can to get hold of it, to obtain it, because it's worth every sacrifice. It's worth every effort. For one day... One day you will see it. You will see how great and glorious this kingdom is in its perfection.
when the new heaven and the new earth comes down. And how awesome it is to be surrounded by all the saints and how astounding it is to be clothed with a new body and how comforting it is to have God himself wipe away every tear from your eye and how wonderful it is to live in his presence every day. So, beloved, there's all kinds of reasons to keep moving forward in the Christian life. There's all kinds of reasons why you should strive with the help of God through the Spirit of God to become more and more poor in spirit. Is acknowledge your daily dependence on God. Acknowledge your need of grace and mercy. Turn to Him every day. Look to Christ. See Him. Imitate Him. Ask for strength to follow him. And when you do that, then you will become in possession of the first quality of a kingdom citizen, being poor in spirit. For when you are, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.